Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome back to another episode on Internwise Podcast. Today, I uh, have the pleasure of hosting a special guest, Rick Watson, uh, friend, uh, industry uh, colleague. You know, I, from my perspective, uh, uh, he is my LinkedIn celebrity that I follow very closely. <laughs> Rick, how are you? <laughs> uh, I'm doing great, uh, Srinath. Uh, it, I'm really happy to be on and uh, talking with you today. Rick, uh, you know, I've, I've interacted with Rick a bit, especially over the last 12 to 18 months. He comes from like a phenomenally deep background, especially in all things e-commerce. Rick, uh, you know, you've been you've been in software companies, you've been in market marketplace management roles, for instance, at Barnes and Noble. Uh, can you help our audience string your you know background together uh, and then just give us a sense for what you have done up to this point in your career yeah so i would say the core um of what i about of what i'm about really has a foundation in technology um it's 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 hard to understand why, where i came from except to kind of learn that i in, i went to school for electrical engineering and computer science and so um there are a lot of people that are, are kind of in their careers and i always thought i would be like oh i'd be a software developer my whole career uh and you know i i did for several years and then i just i what i learned is that it wasn't enough for me yeah uh, i wanted to be involved in technology but i also really loved interacting with customers and helping customers figure out how to realize their goals. And so it wasn't about the technology for its own sake. It was about technology really in pursuit of solving some market problem, what started as customer problem, and then later on market problem. Uh, and yeah. so that's kind of how I think about the world is, although technology is important, I tend not to think about the technology first. Right. I think about who is this for? Like if, if even for this podcast or any any talk that I'm going to do, I spend um, there, there's this quote that's attributed to uh, Abraham Lincoln that, that I was reminded of the other day. So it's like if I had an hour to chop down a tree, I would spend 40 minutes sharpening the axe. Mm -hmm. And 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 I'd say if I if I'm doing the talk a uh, talk and I have an hour to prepare for it, I probably spend 45 minutes thinking about do I understand who the audience is. Yeah. And what 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 would be valuable to them? And then oh, I spend 15 minutes preparing the talk. And so that that's kind of how I think about my consulting business. That's how I think about my career. It's like, how can I be most valuable and the most and kind of the you know most efficient period of time? So I spent 10 years at Channel Advisor, which essentially, you know, when when I started there, the word SaaS didn't exist. They still called it ASP. That's true. Um, and <laughs> yeah. so this was back in 99. So I, I started there as a software developer. I spent 10 years there and we essentially invented this, the whole Amazon software space, more or less. Wow. Uh, for lack of a better word, there, there were there were three or four other companies that were helping retailers on marketplaces. And it wasn't even a marketplace back then. It was an auction. Was, there were auction sites. Yahoo auctions and eBay and those things. So that was at the start, like seeing from 99 to 2010, if you just imagine that time period, which includes the internet boom, bust, and then the recovery through the next recession really was an amazing time to kind of grow with a company from the bottom really. And when I left, I was kind of running all of product management and engineering. So kind of moving from engineering to more something slightly, uh, you know, non-coding, uh 
to where I'm thinking more about business and customers and why do we want to build what we want to build. Uh, I work for barnesandnoble.com to be general manager of their third-party marketplace, uh, which I launched and helped scale. Um, and then I spent the next eight years of my career at first at Merchantry at a software a venture backed software company where I, I actually was able to get I didn't start the business, but I was able to get CEO experience there working with investors selling that business. So just incredible experience understanding different types of customers, not just the end consumer, yeah. not just, you know, retailers and brands, but also investors like what are they looking for? Yeah. Like what does success mean for an investor? And I think that kind of perspective is is interesting. Um, at Pitney Bowes, I got a lot more experience with supply chain. We're building cross-border supply chain software and services, mostly payment and um, kind of warehouse functionality. Yeah. Pitney Bowes managed a cross-stock facility for its cross-border shippers in the US and the UK. And they acquired one of the biggest players in the space at the time, which was Border Free, uh, which is now resold to Global E which is kind of a Shopify company in a matter of speaking. And they also ran eBay's global shipping program, which they still do, at least in the UK. And then about four years ago, almost four years ago, I actually exited Pitney Bowes and started the consulting firm. So this was February, 2019. So I like to say that like in 2019, I saw e-commerce is still growing, but yeah. there are a lot of big brands that are left behind. Yeah, And I was kind of curious why my only my only answer was really two things number one is they don't have the talent to do it and so the, there are people that have been doing the same thing for more or less the same thing in in sometimes great businesses like hundred million dollar businesses multi hundred million dollar businesses that are great at retail they're either retailers that have big store businesses or they're brands that are selling into retail wholesale channels uh, and quite large businesses but very tiny, e-commerce businesses are sometimes non-existent. Yeah. Uh, and so my theory of why that was true, which is mostly talent and vision, uh, they mostly just did not have it, the staff, a sufficient amount of staff to have experience leading initiatives to transform that part of their business. And so that's kind of what I would say half of the consulting, I have really two types of customers that I work with. One is, um, brands primarily that are owned by private equity or recently purchased by private equity and are looking to grow big new digital commerce initiatives. Yeah. So whether that is Amazon businesses, direct-to-consumer businesses, or B2B commerce uh, businesses. And then the other half is because of my software background, I mean, if you look at my history before I started in the consulting business, 80% of my career is with software companies. Hmm. Uh, or, or service providers. And so I understand what it's like to be a software company CEO and selling like that whole thing. I, I just understand it. So I, I get a lot of venture-backed founders that come to me. I would say in between seed, series A, series B is usually the range. And they're looking to make some kind of change to their business. They need to improve yeah. their, their, mis their mission and vision. They need to improve their brand narrative. They need to position themselves in the market better so that their message breaks through it. They're not just viewed as a me too competitor. And so I help them with these. Uh, in, in some cases, the essence of it is who are you serving? And um, we were talking about this before the call. What is your brand narrative? And, and yep. th that really goes to storytelling. Yep. And I would say those two things by themselves are 
very foreign to a lot of founders and management teams. I observed that you have a lot of technical founders in this in our space, the space that we share, Serena. They don't have any don't they don't, don't have a marketing background. Yeah. I don't have a marketing background, to be honest. I've learned it from the school of hard knocks. Yeah. Um, the idea that oh, we're building the software for someone that's like us. Yeah. It's also not true. Yeah. You're building <laughs> software for someone that's very different than you. Yeah. And if you don't have a clear picture of who the customer is you're building for, then it, then you get into trouble pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, you might grow very fast in the first year or two, but then it gets harder. It's uh, that's um, I'm sitting here and writing writing down notes because <laughs> <laughs> you know you know I fit that I, I fit that yeah. second profile right founder trying to grow the business, and what's also interesting from my own personal experience is like the stage of growth at every at, at different points in time constraints and problems you have to solve for and the skill sets you have and your own backgrounds changes constantly you know the the, the phrase what got us here doesn't get us there i mean it's true with us it, it, i live that every day and this is part of the reason why i enjoy our conversations because like uh, i'm listening i'm writing writing down notes. I'm like, okay, i gotta go do what Rick is telling me to do. Yeah, no, love that background. It sounds like so basically digital acceleration and in working with uh, typically SaaS founders is kind of what you focus mm -hmm. on today. What's interesting about the way you relayed your background is I heard the word ASP after a very long time. Right? <laughs> I was SaaS was called ASP, application service providers. Yeah, uh, I think we are both revealing our age to be knowing that term. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> and and, and also so. the other thing I, you talked about is like very few people I run into these days have seen the first, I shouldn't say first, the dot-com downturn. I've seen it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're just about getting started at that time. Sounds yeah. like you've, you've gone through that too. So that's yeah. fascinating experience. Tech has changed quite a bit. Software has changed quite a bit. Um, E-commerce is growing. So clearly you're in this world of growth and new problems to be solved. You know, I think on today's call, we certainly will get into tech and commerce and data. But before I do that, I've got a couple of personal yeah, questions to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've said it before in my, uh, at the start of this conversation, there's very few people I know that don't know you. Like you said, you're like, like I said, you're this internet celebrity. Uh, and by the way, for whoever is listening, if you don't already follow Rick and subscribe to his newsletter, please do and, you know, uh, and read diligently, you'll be way better off like I am <laughs> because of it. Thank so, you. <laughs> um, but I do want to ask you, uh, you know, even for myself, right, I put out a lot of content, I try to be educational in what I do, but you're in a different league. Uh, and I'm sure there was a point in time where you said like, hey, this is what I want to do and this is how I want to do it. Take us back to that moment, right? Personally, wow. and how did you get started? Yeah, and how do you get here? <laughs> it's it's so funny. You, you, as, as you might expect, it it starts doesn't just start in the past four years. Um, if you kind of go back to my background, it's a very strange background in some respects, because if if you if you look at Rick as a freshman, like myself as a freshman in college, I was the only engineer on the debate, and so that. That describes like even just that. I sometimes I tell that to people, and it kind of describes sort of two sides of my personality. And I get a lot of this from my from my father, who has a my my father graduated as a, with a business degree and a computer science degree. Oh, okay. 
And, and so he kind of just, that was normal to me yeah. that you could be a technologist and run a business. Um, and, and so when I was through high school and college, I was on the debate team. I enjoyed speaking and writing. Mm. And as I got through my career, I would say, let's say during the 2000s, I started want a blog or two every now and then as blogs started to become like blogs were a hot thing in 2003, yeah. right? Yep. You know, blogger.com and like all these things. Yes. <laughs> and from time to time, I would start a blog and write every now and then as an employee of, a, of Channel Advisor. I would stop, like you kind of lose the motivation. The, the key issue I think is motivation. Well, as I got to Barnes & Noble, I kind of picked it up again. And here's what I knew about Barnes & Noble. Nobody cared about Barnes & Noble at the time. Even in 2011, Amazon had, was already like well in the lead and Barnes & Noble was well far behind. And so what I knew even as a relatively senior leader at Barnes and Noble is nobody would care what I write. And so I could write honest things that other people could could not write because they were at companies and that had PR policies. And not that Barnes and Noble necessarily didn't, but no it's a big enough company that nobody cared necessarily what I was writing about. Yeah. Um and so I learned uh that I that I could write better mm. if I didn't care who was listening. And I didn't necessarily care about being too proper uh, in terms of, I just want to say what I feel is right and let the rest of it focus out. And yeah, there might be from time to time companies that get upset by what I say. I write about the popular companies um, because that's what, yeah. that's what moves the industry. That's why I write about them. Uh, I write about the companies that move the industry, like Amazon, Shopify, big, like these companies move the industry. And yeah. so I write about them, whatever my feeling is. And I'm like, well, if I were a Shopify executive, what do I think like about this crazy person who's writing about me? <laughs> I, I hope over time, if they read me, not just sort of one isolated piece, they read me over time that I, like, I'm on both sides of it. Yeah. And by, I, I've changed my opinion on many different things over time. And as I learn new things, and a lot of times I'm, I'm enjoying guessing about what might happen. That's part of the enjoyment I get out of it is okay. not trying. I, I hate the idea. Actually, I hate the idea that, oh, I'm, I'm so smart that I can predict the future. No, I can't mm. predict it. It's, that's dumb. I, I, to me, I think people who make too many predictions, it's not like, what's the point of making predictions? Yeah. What I like to do is analyze different scenarios. Like if these things happen, this is important. So I enjoy that planning exercise. Yeah. Um, and I use some of my content for that. And so kind of back to you, this is a long-winded way of getting to the kind of your original question, which is how do I do it so consistently? And so you, yeah. you had mentioned before, sort of like consistency, quality, discipline, all those things matter. And I've been posting on LinkedIn basically every single day for almost four years now, wow. which is difficult to do. And the, look, the short answer is when I started my business, I know I needed clients. Yeah. And I can't have clients without awareness. Yeah. So that is yeah. the, the simplest way for me to describe it. If I stop marketing, yeah. my business dies. Yeah. And, no. and fear of death of the business is an incredible motivation. And I, I would say, like you, you said a couple of things here, which is, first of all, having a point of view which can come from 
you know, thinking deeply or been in a space a long time. So that's important. Second thing you said is like not caring too much about what someone else thinks, right? <laughs> and yeah. third, not being perfect in, before you put out an opinion. And then all that wrapped in uh, discipline uh, can clearly, we can see what has happened here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that, thank you for sharing that. Um, and there's a lot of folks, I think, in our own ecosystem that want to be visible, want to be doing things. But I think this is these are great takeaways to uh, to move the needle on that for themselves. So thank you again for sharing that. Yeah. I think today, um, uh, Rick, a few topics I have in mind, uh, a lot of it related to things you've already published, uh, which is, uh, you know, e-com, you know, just we've seen earnings reports from the uh, Amazons, Walmarts, Targets. I pay close attention to what's happening to the advertising aspect of these businesses. And they're all different stories. But I do want to just pick your brain on understanding uh 2022 versus 2021 what happened you know state of economy and what does all that mean to brands and in our case brands and agencies in this amazon eco or ecom retail ecosystem and as we get into 2023 broadly that's kind of my theme and as and, and also perhaps a little bit of time thinking about SaaS companies like us you know how should what should we be planning for um would be super helpful if that if that all makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, it um, makes sense. Yeah, 2022 versus 2021 and, and now kind of going into 2023. I think it's helpful to start back in, you know, we're just coming off of from an e-commerce point of view, 2020 and 2021, the biggest growth years ever. You know, and, and you know, ever really, <laughs> you know, in the past 20 years. Yeah. Uh, for sure. You have to go back to like 99, 98 to have any kind of similar years. And there are not many people that have been around that long. Yeah. So I think the, the first thing that happened is we had the oh shit moment, which is March, March of this year, I think, March. where people realized that this year wasn't going to be just a little bit better than last year. Hmm. It's going to yeah. be different. Yeah. And so I think I think people thought like, oh, if we could just get through these supply chain challenges, we're going to be golden. Yeah. The change in Fed policy, the Ukraine cons consumers tightening, Ukraine oil prices, yeah, um, rising labor costs, all these things contributed to like a lot of economic worry and a big effect on the consumer behaviors. Sure. And so I think in Q1. Uh, you didn't see it as much, but Q2, you saw big shifts in consumer behavior. Yeah. Uh, and that caused a lot of misses, retail misses in Q2 and Q3 uh, that even I think are continuing into Q4 in heavy discounting. And we're still kind of working our way through, even now, Yeah. the fact that at the beginning of the year, when you bought all of your, let's say, especially if you're in a seasonal business, these are the people who had it worst. You're yeah. you're planning all your holiday in, inventory buys in what February, March, right. you know, confirming them in April, and then they they land in August, September, depending on if it's holiday or fall or like what your seasons are. Yeah. If you didn't cancel those orders before they were placed, you're you had a rough year. Yeah. And so that describes so many big retailers and brands. Um, 
so I think that's the story of 2022. And I think some companies avoided it. I think Macy's is kind of a standout, but many companies did not. Yeah. Uh, and I think folks like Walmart and Target, like Walmart did a little bit better than Target. Target was pretty rough uh, in, in their earnings and write downs, but most of the, you know, Nordstrom's and any retailer who holds, who buys and holds inventory struggled, like seriously struggled. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of 2022. And I think as we went from, and I think people forget the fact that in February of this year, interest rates were at 0%. <laughs> yeah. Zero, um, literally yeah. zero. Yeah. And Is so- that, Was that Feb? Was that Feb of this year? Is that, I mean, I- Yeah, know, something like, okay. like that. I mean- Wow. If not okay. Feb, they're like close around that time. Oh, wow. Because the Fed started at, at zero because last year and the year before, it was all about, oh, we're coming back from COVID. We need to give people a reason to spend Come money on. again. And so we're going to keep this policy. Yeah. And so now that they realized consumers were changing, they realized there was too much money in the economy and that you know maybe some elements are overheated. And so now we're getting back to more, quote unquote, historically normal interest rates. Yeah. Um, and so I think the short answer is this year and next year, and possibly even the year after that, we're still coming off the effects of COVID still. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not in COVID, but we are playing forward all the second and third order effects oh. of the economy shutting off, yep. monetary policy being extremely loose, extra government money in, in there. And then what happens when you try to unwind that really quickly? Yeah. Uh, so that's, the, uh, to me, that's the starting point of what's happening. Makes sense. Um, and I think, uh, you know, where, where I sit, uh, there is the whole retail aspect of what we have seen happen, certainly in Q3, and we'll see how Q4 goes. Obviously, uh, retail media is something we sit and think about a lot. Hot topic. Uh, perhaps yeah. the fastest growing advertising segment. What was interesting about that is Amazon with a with this massive base, right, grew by about 30%, but so did Walmart. And then Target, I think, grew by around 10% or less, right? Yeah. So I would love your take on high forces reality in this on this trend and you know. Uh, will the long tail of retailers ever become relevant in size compared to, let's say, Amazon? And uh, yeah, so what's what's uh, what's your read on that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Look, I I think um, you know retail media in some respects has become the new co-op dollars, you know, in in retail and like how to be seen by buyers and get information about who's viewing your brand, getting introduced to your brand in a way that you can segment and analyze yeah. uh, and, and improve. So I think that is the huge breakthrough that retail media made versus traditional, especially in an era where it's very hard to get data through cookies anymore. True. Um, yeah. You can't just sort of steal data from the browser anymore, which is what it, marketers have been doing forever. A long time. And so it's become harder to do that. Yeah. Um, and so in the face of that, retail media has been this sort of uh, big savior. And that's kind of number one. And, and second, I think all digital media has continued to rise because we're still dealing with multi-decade secular shifts from offline to online advertising. 
Yep. And so retail media naturally benefits from that still. It just happens to be the fastest growing component, you know, digital advertising, you know, because, you know, Facebook and Google have already had their yeah, and and Google continues run. to grow. Google continues to grow. I mean, Facebook has had a very specific issue that they've run into, but Google continues yeah. to grow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. The company, I, the first co- e-commerce company I worked at was a company founded by Scott Wingo, who founded Channel Advisor. It was called Auction Rover. Auction mm. Rover was bought by GoTo.com, which invented paid search. Which is Google's, which is Google's biggest business model. In yeah. fact, it's like the best business model in the history of business models, <laughs> essentially. And, and it's very hard to argue otherwise <laughs> because they're insanely profitable. Yep. Um, except if you consider like, okay, if we had a desktop and op- an office software monopoly like Microsoft, then that's that's a pretty good business model too. Yes. And and so the fact that we're having to talk about those two companies, but the, all, all this to mean that Google and Facebook have already had their run. Yeah. And they're going to keep, um, I think Facebook, most of its wounds are self-inflicted or well, we, we could talk about Facebook yeah. on its own. But, yes. but yes. From, a, from a Google point of view, people aren't going to start stop typing in Google anytime soon. Yeah, true. And and, <laughs> right. and the one thing, one thing that surprised me so far about Google, and perhaps it's something I... Uh, I miss about this is Google, I thought would just go and power all the media platforms for all these retailers. Mm. I don't know if it's too small for them or why Google hasn't shown up and become the behind the scenes ad tech stack for for a lot of the retailers is a puzzle for me. Yeah. Here's what I've observed by advertising companies that have attempted to move into retail or even software businesses. The reason is advertising is such a high margin business mm. that it's very hard to move, convince Away. the investors and the management to move into lower margin businesses. Mm. Mm. And I think Amazon had the interesting position that what did Jeff do? He was reselling books <laughs> that he was buying from Baker and Taylor and Ingram Micro. Yeah, That was the beginning of Amazon. He like, he didn't produce books yeah he didn't manufacture books he was he was a reseller yep and so when he entered the toy business there were they had employees going to toys r us stores to buy <laughs> i mean the business model was not special yeah the technology and the inventiveness uh was special yeah uh and and the people there were special i, I would argue as well but what I, what I think is when you come from that kind of business where you're struggling to break even, any retail business, period, they're struggling to break even. Yep. If you have five points of margin at the end of the day, that's a great, solid retail business. That's Walmart, yep. right? And you, um, would run it, you would run at these opportunities. I, I, I get your point where like uh, yeah. someone sitting in Google's position may not look at t- It looks like a terrible business. <laughs> <laughs> totally makes sense. Um, I think so that's Tokyo- why Google has never disrupted Amazon, period. Like they have, I remember being at Channel Advisor talking to Google in 2006 yeah. about like, oh, we see what Amazon's doing. We're going to make our own marketplace. And yeah. we had that conversation every two years yeah. with them, with a new person, a different, new and different person. Yeah. So I think Google doesn't really understand retail 
to a serious degree. Sure. Um, they have a lot of bright retail people in, um, in, in different ways. Yeah. But mostly about ads. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. I, that's an interesting uh, perspective. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, meaning like when, when your uh, bread and butter business is such high margin, you're not going to go do other things a whole lot. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, Unless you're forced to. Um, talking about Amazon, I think uh, very recently you had written about, you know, how Amazon you expect to make, continue to make big bets through the downturn if there were a continued downturn. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Uh, and I know um, you've always held the thesis of, how important product innovation is for long-term mm -hmm. sustenance. But um, they are making some moves, right? Like uh, they've let go a bunch of people around Alexa uh, 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 and they're making certain moves. But even within all of that, you expect them to go invest and keep making certain big bets. So talk through that a little bit for me. <laughs> yeah, so I would say, look, right now, ha Amazon has really two businesses one is prime yeah and then the other is aws really you know priming covers everything really everything um including logistics yeah. i would say even even with amazon's innovation uh and the things that they've shut down and, and the mistakes that they've made you know making on big bets they're still making pretty big bets at the ads business as you will know, it's a relatively new business at Amazon. Yeah. You know, sure. six years ago, what was the ad business? Yeah. Not hardly anything. You know, yeah. uh, you know, Jeff Bezos fam famously didn't want ads on the platform for years and years, thinking it would be because they were so customer obsessed, and built and um, and Jeff didn't care about the margin. Yeah, really. Now I think that changed clearly in a big way now everything is for sale on amazon every every square pixel it feels like is for sale mm -hmm. uh as you know um because that's your business i i think ads is a big business i think they want to make logistics a big business outside of amazon uh as well so i think that's a bet they're making uh they've launched awd and i think they're going to try to expand mcf and i think that's part of what they're doing with buy with prime trying to move off amazon um, and then I think part of ads is video as well. And so it's hard to forget about the fact that they just bought a movie studio, an entire movie studio, hmm. you know, and what is that? It's an, as far as I'm concerned, it's an ad surface. All of their content efforts are ad surfaces. That's it. It's it's a way to learn about consumer behavior, and it's a way to give advertisers a way to reach that behavior in a measurable way. Yeah, um, and I think that last part is key because that's always the key to anything Amazon is doing. Is <laughs> we're going to be more measurable and more transparent than any other ad marketplace. So I think that's one thing. And then the other big bet that they're making is healthcare, which who knows what the heck they're going to do there. But I can tell you the process of going from a general practitioner who refers me to a specialist then I have to wait to reach them every few weeks and months and then go to the pharmacy and wait in a 12-hour line to to get my prescription I hope Amazon takes over the whole space I to be honest with you 
because I mean, it's a it's a disaster. Uh, it's it's crazy, and I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I have I have a bunch of friends and family that work there, and what they've done for their employees in terms of and you know, how quickly they can set up appointments, get some basic health checks done. Uh, it's incredible. I mean, to be honest, if they are able to get that uh, and turn that into a service for the the, the entire country, <laughs> yeah, uh, that'll be pretty tremendous. Yeah, and, and so I think if you look at the re- retail business that's not having to do with ads or logistics, I think Amazon is pretty boring. (laughs) I mean, yeah, they're making PDP improvements. They're improving the search. They're adding little ad, new ad units and, you know, surfacing images better. And yeah, what else is like, what else are they doing? Like more lightning deal? Like it's not that interesting. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But so buy with prime, right? Obviously it's been on the airwaves quite a bit like a few months back. I know you have a point of view on this. Um, yeah. Uh, now, I mean, maybe they're working on it, but it's 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 not widespread. Like you don't mm-hmm. run into it everywhere. Maybe it's them working through the kinks. But super interested in your take on where you see that going, hype versus reality around that. Mm. And then of course, what does it mean for Shopify and big commerce because I know Shopify did a little bit did a little bit of dance around yes we will allow then no we won't allow and and I don't know where it is that I don't follow that very closely <laughs> but uh would love your take on that yeah I, look I think buy with prime to me there there are a couple of things that have have happened in the last five or six years inside of Amazon number one is they used to run a web store business and they they gave it away uh they they actually tried to give it to big commerce. Big commerce didn't want it, and they gave it. They gave it to Shopify, and wow. so essentially, like you know, I don't know. I, I used to know what the number was, but it's anywhere between a couple of hundred stores and a couple of thousand stores were essentially given away by Amazon to another provider. Oh, wow. um, and so, I think there are people with inside Amazon that have a little bit of Shopify FOMO, if you want my honest opinion. <laughs> that they've tried to do stores in the past. It didn't work. Shopify came from nowhere. Yeah. And who knows e-commerce better than Amazon? Who are these crazy Canadian guys? <laughs> right? Yep. And, and so I think there's some of that. Like to me, that's kind of the baseline, right? And then on top of that, you build the fact that um, in the past three, four years, um, off Amazon e-commerce has started to grow f- slightly faster than on Amazon Mm -hmm. e-commerce, meaning Mm -hmm. like particularly like the SMB middle market brands. And part of that is do, you know, part of that is I would say sustainable and part of that is unsustainable. The the sustainable part is that Amazon has started to ask some interesting questions because there are certain products that people just don't want to buy on Amazon that are hard to buy on Amazon, whether because of trust or what, or they're just not known for that category or whatever it is. Um, I think the other part is, you know, obviously VC investment and direct-to-consumer brands have artificially pushed that growth faster. And obviously now that is slowing down. Yeah. Uh, so some of that will come back to earth yeah. uh, a, a little bit. And so I think the interesting thing from a career point of view is that historically you had Amazon or you have marketplace focused brands and mm-hmm. then you had direct focus brands yeah and the two worlds did not meet very often to be honest yeah. with you yeah 
the marketplace focused brands really didn't mostly care about their own website. And yeah. I think that's by and large still true, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, it's the direct to consumer brands that have, some of them started to care a decent yeah. amount about Amazon. I yeah. think I think those are the more crossover audience because I think most of the market historically focused marketplace brands, they think of Amazon as oh they're going to give me the traffic. I just want to focus on the product and the operations, right? That's right. That that's, that's right. just the historical pro, you know promise that has been made. Made you know yeah. whether you call it a devil's promise or not, that's yeah. the that's the bargain that was struck between yeah. the brand owners and and or the sellers and Amazon, and so I think the idea. Look, Amazon is trying to find margin wherever it is. And if it can go into a higher growth market, which is these off Amazon sellers, it's going to try and do that. And by the way, who has a better logistics service in the world than Amazon? Yep. Nobody. Hmm. Uh, you talk to every, it's, it also strikes me, you, you can talk to any 3PL on the planet. I don't care. Pick a name. Yeah. All of them will openly admit Amazon is way better than us. Very yeah. openly. Yeah. That sounds like an asset to me. How yeah. can we leverage that? And by the way, we tried this thing called Amazon Pay, and it didn't seem like that successful. Yeah. Now, I don't know what the number is. Let's call it 1% to 3% penetration. Yeah. Uh, certainly not more successful than PayPal. Yeah. Um, but you know they've been at it longer. And so I think they're trying to see if they can jam a few things together yeah. and participate in this growth off Amazon that seems to be happening uh, and not miss out on this upside. You know, so that's, to me, that's the basics of it. Yeah. Totally makes sense. And, and I think, I do think that uh, I think they do need to work out a bunch of product kinks around it. Yeah. Yeah. Our friends are, you know, yeah. agency partners trying to help them ramp up. So we'll see how this plays out. Exactly. Um, uh, especially in 2023. Yeah, I mean, where where they are, I think they're they're an alpha. Yeah, and that's so right. not a lot of people know what they're doing. Not a lot of people know what the results are right now. Yeah, and so it's a work in progress. Makes sense. And um, I think Amazon. I think that's probably what the world needs to know right now. And there are yeah. people that are experimenting with it and to see what the results are. I think if you Amazon's pitch is. If you have the best logistics at the lowest, at free costs with free yeah. returns, yep. you're going to greatly improve your conversion rate. And that's the, that's the pitch right now. And I think they're trying to prove that at scale. That's what they're trying to do right now. Prove that at scale, convince people that it's okay to do. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so there's a... There's a lot happening. Uh, we didn't talk about the whole trust issue right there, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. Uh, and then there's also tie-in with advertising because they aren't, they aren't just saying, hey, put a badge, but we'll help you drive a bunch of traffic to you. In theory, incredibly compelling. So we'll see how the trust part plays out and the execution plays out. So Rick, we are in 2023. One of the tr trends I have noticed all through 2022, and it's really started in 2021. And if you take Amazon, for example, they are democratizing and sharing an incredible amount of information. Um, Walmart is doing a little bit of that. Uh, I think other marketplaces are going that direction. You know, Amazon Marketing Cloud, you know, we hear a lot about it. It's information at a grain that has never not been available before. And it's, it's a data clean room. Um, 
And it also allows uh, retailers and brands to upload their own first party data and build really targeted audiences. Um, and Amazon Marketing Cloud is one of many examples where Amazon is sharing more and more data. Would love your take on what the implication of that is is for uh, brands uh, in 2023. Yeah, I, I think uh, a, a couple of things about this. First of all, um, I think the big global brands are able to leverage this data. Most brands are not able to on their own anyway. So I think the reality is brands are going to see a benefit for these. I would say the rest of the, if you're not at the peak of the pyramid in terms of technological capabilities, uh, if you're sort of everyone else, you're having to rely on essentially agencies and technology providers to give you uh, a view into what this data means. And so um, to me, that's the big lesson for me with Amazon is that they're, they're trying to find essentially where the dollar is being allocated and spent and not trying to sell that on a brand by brand level. They're going to the agencies, they're going you know, to these service providers and opening up uh, their kimono with the, uh, I think, correct uh, value proposition that says, who has better purchase intent shoppers than Amazon? Who has more traffic than us? Who has more data than us? And the more we open, the more we're going to win. I, I, I think it's only good news for for Amazon from, from that front. Yeah, and I think that uh, it does certainly put a pressure on brands and agencies and everybody to kind of upskill and actually leverage these assets that are being made accessible. Certainly an opportunity for players like us. Right. Um, yeah, I think that I think the challenge for brands is if you ask the average brand owner or marketer, like, do you need more data and reports? The answer will never be yes. Um, they don't have enough time in the day to finish their email, much less to analyze how their business is going. So I think that's the flip side of this problem. And I think why raising the level on its own isn't good enough. It has to be easily digestible. It has to be packaged in a way, I think, by third parties and technology solutions, whether they're developed internally or externally, so that it becomes easier to take action on it, either automatically or, or otherwise. Great point. Um, and talking about brands, if I'm a brand listening to this conversation, right, Rick, um, and I've got big growth plans for 2023, thoughts on like key do's and don'ts um, uh, in terms of executing that plan? Wow. Um, I, I think, so if we're talking about data for a second, uh, I would say establishing one of the first things that I think is necessary for most brands to execute any kind of data transformation strategy is to have a data center of excellence, period. Um, most brands that are trying to do this, they have one person in the sales department that's helping support the sales team. They have one person in the, in the marketing department that's helping support the marketing team. They have one person and the finance, you know, supporting the finance team who, who obviously needs, those are, those are usually the three concentrations. And then you have the IT team who is tasked with supporting, let's say Power BI and mm -hmm. Microsoft Data Lake, for instance. Yep. And they don't really know anything necessarily about what the data does. And they're happy as long as it sort of stays running. Yeah. And so between this sort of 
collection of people you really have no one who owns who wakes up every day and thinks about a few things. Number one is how do we find more data sources to add to our data lake, which will then become fuel for future reports and business improvements. So yeah. more data sources. Second is how do we assess the quality of the data we already have every single day? And I think most people haven't even asked that question, much less answered it. Yeah, especially especially when these data, data sets are coming from the external world and the mm -hmm. pressure on data quality is a whole lot higher when that's happening. Right. And I think the final thing, advice I would give to brands is you have this huge divide. And I think it gets back to this data excellence team um, between individuals that are running the business and individuals that understand data. And there's a whole class of translators um, whether they're called data analysts or product managers, um, those are usually, you know two of the more common names um, that are able to, they understand the power of data and they know enough about the business to be dangerous, yep. but they don't know enough to really run a marketing department. And then you, you have, on the other hand, you have marketing leadership who understands very well what the customer wants, segmentation, trends, attribution, where they want to allocate their money, but they don't know anything about the company's data assets and how to ask for the data they need in a smart way and to really integrate that in the best way in their workflow. So that usually takes some kind of product management or data analyst resources that is able to listen to the needs of the business, understand, okay, we have I'm just going to use a strange, like an example. We have 20 data points. Half of them are riddled with errors. Half are good. We need another 30 data points. Where can we get this data from? Maybe there are source systems that haven't been integrated with the data lake, either internally or externally. So there's a lot of connective tissue internally in these particularly larger brands that it's it's very hard to run those uh, there are brands that have done a, a fantastic job at this, but I think they're more often than not, you see uh, understaffing uh, in, in these sorts of areas. So just to summarize that, those last points, right? So comprehensiveness of data, focus on data quality. And I, I mean, I don't know what the right term is, but you need these bridges between the data world and the business world. Mm -hmm. um, and in the in the realm of retail media, there is another universe that is kind of disconnected, which is the teams that manage media from the teams mm -hmm. that run ops and from the teams mm -hmm. that manage data. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and how these three come together uh, potentially will drive or influence the efficiency of any brand, you know, uh, that is, you know, trying to drive growth, uh, especially right. on these marketplaces. Yeah. And, and look, the good thing about mid-market companies and smaller companies is that you don't need to hire all these people. True. You do if you're a big brand. Yeah. If, if you're a smaller brand, then a lot of that work moves to service providers. And so if you have a, 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 a good dashboard provider and, and a good, um, you know, PPC campaign manager, like whatever, yeah. you like go anywhere on the date in the marketing stack. If it's not easy for someone who's not an expert, who's early in the career of digital marketing to use, then they're not going to use it, yeah. you know, and some other company is going to win. And so it's their, it's the technology provider's job 
to provide the product managers and the data translators and listen to their customers to build in something easy to use. Yeah. Uh, Rick, uh, perhaps I'll, I'll end this conversation with asking you a question, but it's time for predictions in 2023. <laughs> so uh, I would be curious uh, to see like what would be, what is your take on, uh, you know, what would your predictions be, uh, noteworthy predictions, uh, you know, uh, for the year? Yeah, I, I think I think Amazon is going to keep gaining share because they have the selection and the inventory, I would say, relative to the average D2C brand, you know, that's grown up over the last five or six years. Um, and I think there, there are two things that have happened to direct consumer in the past few years, one after the other. And it's almost like a, a one-two punch in, in some respects. The first punch was Apple and, and others squeezing the cost of customer acquisition due to targeting and other challenges. And that's everyone's seen that played out over the past 18 months. But the second thing that's happening since interest rates have started going up is the cost of capital is getting higher. And what that means for the average direct-to-consumer brand or organization or even software provider, that means raising money is more difficult or financing your inventory is more expensive. Um, and so the things that you were able to do in two years ago at the height of the pandemic are harder now and harder to justify. And so I think that is going to shake out some marginally profitable brands, mm. you know, that were maybe just breaking even or just squeaking by, or it will force them to really tighten their belts um, as they um, kind of move forward. So I think that's, um, that, that's another thing that I kind of look at. And usually I always start with um, a lot of my consulting practice. I work with private equity and, and venture capital because that's where the money starts, right? And yep. then it sort of trickles down to or, or, or gets doled out to the rest of the economy. And we're all kind of affected by what's happening in the capital markets to some extent. But I love following the other side too, which is like, what are the operators thinking? And I think more advertising dollars will continue to flow to Amazon. Um, I think I think Google's going to be, you know, just just fine. Facebook is going to be relatively fine, um, as long as Mark Zuckerberg doesn't starve off <laughs> Facebook of uh, or a meta of uh, investment instead of developing VR. Yeah. So 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 those are some of the things that I'm thinking about. I mean, we see a lot of early stage stuff that is super interesting, like Chat GPT and and these things, but these are. I would say going to generate a lot of interest in 2023, but I think the commercialization, much like the internet, yep. despite the fact that you could find a lot of chat GPT apps on the app store today, none of them are actually legal because you can't commercialize the technology yet, yeah. but 2024, 2025, it will be a different story. Awesome. Well, Rick, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I just don't think there's, We'll have enough time to talk about all the topics you can talk about. We, in fact, if this recording itself has stretched a couple of sessions, um, but uh, sincerely appreciate you taking the time coming on to our podcast um, and wish you the very best in 2023. Should be an exciting year. Yeah. No, thanks a lot, Serena. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you.